Peace be with you, and welcome to The Word Unveiled. My name is Gordon Peck. I'm the Director of Evangelization for Adult Programs at St. Malachy Church in Sterling Heights. Our program tonight is Catholic Beginnings in Detroit, Part 3. As in all things, let us begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you that we live in a land where the gospel is proclaimed with vigor and enthusiasm. Teach us to cherish the freedoms we have in giving due praise to you, our Lord. Teach us to always worship you and to love our neighbors as ourselves, as our Savior, Jesus Christ, teaches us. May our faith grow richer and more complete every day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We're going to look at the time period from 1865 to 1925, a very dynamic time in the history of Detroit. What you see on the screen is the interior of St. Albertus Church in Detroit. Well, Detroit really became a destination city between the years 1870 and 1920. And in 1870, there were only there were fewer than 80,000 people in the city. But one thing was going to happen that was going to change that quite a bit, and that's the invention of the automobile. So why were automobiles manufactured in Detroit? Well, because they were engineers and they were skilled mechanics in the city because Detroit was a place where marine engines for Great Lakes ships were built and also where railroad equipment was built. So this labor pool made it ideal for entrepreneurs to bring their automobile company to the city. So in 1870, there were less than 80,000 people in the city. Ten years later, there was almost 120,000. Ten years after that, there was over 200,000. And in 1910, there was 465,766 people in the city of Detroit. But ten years after that, 993,000 people. There are only 640,000 people in the city of Detroit today. So that gives you an idea of the influx of population and the great growth that occurred in this time period. Here's a map of the city of Detroit, which shows how it annexed land. Uh, the, the original city starts out, it's a little tiny yellow square, if you can see it on the map, right above the word river and Detroit River. But even as far out as, as Belle Isle, that wasn't part of the city until 1879. But by 1926, the whole area that you see on this map had been annexed uh, over various time periods. Here's what the city looked like in 1900. The city limits were approximately uh, where West Grand and East Grand Boulevard uh, go to now. And the new factories were actually built out in the cornfields out beyond uh, and, and absorbed two little towns of Highland Park and Hamtramck. The, the yellow circles are the locations of the churches we're going to talk about tonight. So this immigration uh, that happened in Detroit, it, it came in waves of nationalities. Of course, the French were the first in the 1700s, and then after they'd lost control of the area in 1760, Americans, that is, uh, British descendants who had moved to the American colonies, were the next group that came into the area. But by the 1820s, Belgians, and then in the 1830s, Irish started to immigrate into the area. And then the Germans joined in in, 18, in the 1830s as well. In the 1890s, Italians were the predominant uh, uh, group coming into the, into the city. And then the Polish p 
people started to arrive around 1900 and, and continue on until about 1925. In the 1930s, with the recession, the, or I should say the economic depression, people were looking for jobs and the auto companies were a few of the places where they could. So people from the southern United States started to immigrate into the, into the city of Detroit. And then with the Second World War and the war production going on, a lot of African-American people also from the southern states uh, immigrated into uh, Detroit. In the 1950s, it was the Hispanics. And then in the 1970s, we saw immigration from the Middle East, Chaldeans and, and Christian, other Christian and Islamic uh, people from the Middle East. So Detroit had always been a city in flux. Uh, if you go about the city, you will see that there are mansions that are right next to old factories. And there was always a ring. The, 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 the mansions would be built on the edge of the town, and then the town would grow out farther, and then the mansions would be built in another ring. Well, this is a photograph on the screen of, uh, of uh, Campus Marshes in, in downtown Detroit. You see the opera house in the background that was built in 1866. But there's a horse-drawn streetcar, and behind that there is a statue, which is the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial from the Civil War. Now, one of the first churches established after St. Anne's was Holy Trinity Church. This was a very interesting church because it was actually built by the First Protestant Society group. Uh, they built a church in the center part of downtown Detroit. And, and then when the cholera epidemic came between 1826 and 1837, uh, Bishop Reese purchased the building and turned it into a, a hospital. And that may have been the place where uh, Father Gabriel Richard died. He died in the cholera epidemic. Well, after that was over with, the, the original building was dismantled, moved to its current location, and reconstructed. And you see a photograph of it here. Uh, it was completed there in 1866, and at the time it was the tallest building in the state of Michigan. And, it last, and that lasted only five years when the uh, uh, Detroit City Hall building was built. It doesn't look much different today. The exterior is very much like it looked in 1866. It's the second oldest parish in Detroit after St. Anne's, and it's, uh, and it's located in what we would call Corktown, and, that, and it had a, a great number of Irish immigrants uh, flocked to the church in its earliest days. It's a very elegant church. You can see at this funeral mass uh, with the photo taken from the balcony just how elegant it is for a, a church that was built in 18. 66. Another church that's early uh, in Detroit was the St. Mary's Church. Uh, St. Mary's Church is in what we now call Greektown. Uh, the parish was founded in 1843. It was established by Father Martin Kundig, who came from Germany to serve uh, German-speaking Catholics. And in 1841, Antoine and Monica Bobian a prominent French family in the city, sold land at the corner of St. Antoine and Krogan. Krogan Street is now called Monroe. And they sold it to the parish for $1 to be used uh, to construct the new church. And the church was, the original church was uh, consecrated in 1843. And the church that you see in the photo is actually the church that replaced that original church. And that was constructed in 1884 and completed in 1885. Now, it's a very ornate church on the interior. Uh, you see the, the uh, central altar. There are two side altars. 
The, the side altar on the right actually caught fire about six or seven years ago. Uh, apparently a candle got tipped over, and fortunately the church was not lost. Only the side altar had to be reconstructed. Look at those beautiful marble columns, only they're not. They're actually Michigan white pine. All of the churches built in the 19th century in the city of Detroit use this technique. It's a white pine construction, sanded smooth and coated with nine layers of translucent lacquer. Nobody knows how they really did this. The, 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 the art has been lost. But all of the, but what you look like, what looks like marble is actually white pine. And you can find that in the Michigan State Capitol building as well. Here's the ceiling with the transept over the altar uh, to, the, to the left. And then another view of the, of the main altar in the left. And here's a, a young lady being escorted down the aisle by her father. She's a remarkable girl. She's my daughter. But the church is used for a lot of weddings because it's so ornate, so it's, it's uh, uh, made available for these special weddings. So um, the altar dates back to 1885, and so to do most of the interior. The stained glass was, was uh, produced by the Detroit Stained Glass Works, and we're gonna hear more about them in, in uh, some of the other churches uh, to come. This is a, it's a great church that's uh, used a lot by people who work downtown. Uh, mass starts usually at 1215, and it's over by 1245, so you can get back to your office. Um, I would go here frequently when I work downtown, go here or to St. Peter and Paul or to St. Aloysius. Those are the three churches that offer noontime masses. This photo is interesting because here we see St. Mary looking back toward downtown Detroit. And I believe every single building that you can see in this photo was constructed after St. Mary's Church. Another early church in the city was St. Joseph's Church. And this was for a parish of German immigrants. It was, the parish was founded in 1855, and the church building is a Gothic structure. It's inspired by a church uh, called St. Katharina's in Saarland. That's a, that's a province of Germany. And the cornerstone was laid in 1870, and the church was dedicated in 1873. This makes it one of the oldest existing churches in, in uh, Detroit. But when, in its early days, it was built without any heating system. So early morning masses must have been quite crisp in the wintertime. It's an example of uh, Victorian Gothic architecture. It's especially good example because it has not been updated or changed or modified in any way. It, they've been true to the original um, uh, character of the architecture. The building's on the National Register of Historic Places. It was uh, added to that register in 1972 and the rest of the complex was added in 1992. And in just the past two or three years, it's become a, a national shrine. Here's a view of the altar. It's set up for a Tridentine mass. So it faces away from the congregation. Uh, the tabernacle is of course in the center, but the, uh, the altar for reading the epistles is to the right and the gospel is to the left. Here's a view from the altar looking back toward the entrance of the church and you see the, the very large uh, pipe organ and the choir loft in the distance. The Stations of the Cross are very beautiful. They're a combination of porcelain and wood. Here's a detail in the left. And then there are other uh, sculptures and statues. This one in the transept of the Pieta. 
the windows um, must have been designed by different committees because there, there are different styles of windows in this church, and they're all original. Uh, but you can see there's a very geometric pattern. Then there's one that shows lives of the saints. And then there's a more, uh, there's a depiction of the good shepherd. So the windows, a lot of variety. In the left, you see the, the view of the entrance of the church. This would be oriented toward Gratiot Avenue. Then there's the back of the church in the center photo. And that's, uh, the back is uh, toward Lafayette Park. And then a view of the uh, steeple in the evening. Now, Last episode, we talked about how St. Peter's and Paul Church on Jefferson had been built, and it had become the uh, cathedral of the city. And then in 1877, uh, the uh, Jesuits took control of the church and established the University of Detroit. So a new, a new um, uh, cathedral had to be formed. Well, Bishop Caspar Borges purchased the Westminster Presbyterian Church. It's not this picture, but it was on that site. He, he bought it, and it was constructed in 1861, first year of the Civil War, on Washington Boulevard, and it was purchased in the spring of 1873 for $25,000. And on August 24th, 1873, it was consecrated and became a St. Aloysius Church. And in 18, and then four years later, it became the uh, cathedral, and it remained the cathedral until 1890 when a new church St. Patrick's was constructed and took over that function. The uh, St. Aloysius Church was replaced in place uh, in 1930, and this is the church that, that now occupies that site. This is an old photo from probably uh, 1915, 1920, and it's directly across the street from St. Aloysius. So when it was the cathedral, that was the, uh, the bishop's residence, the three-story building that you see there. Now, Irish immigrants had continued to come to Detroit, and they had originally settled in Corktown and gone to Holy Trinity Church, but that church soon became overcrowded, and they looked for a place to build another church, and they, centered, they, they settled on a location in the central part of the city of Detroit, and they built St. Patrick's Church. And originally, it could seat 600 people, but it soon became overcrowded, so they expanded it uh, in 1871 to be twice that size. So it was a very ornate church. It was built on the what was the edge of the city at the time. So uh, constructing an ornate church like St. Patrick's in the middle of cornfields seemed terribly wasteful at first. But the founding pastor, who was Father James Hennessy, said that one day this church would be the Cathedral of Detroit. And he was right. So in 1890, Bishop John Foley designated St. Patrick's to become the new cathedral, replacing St. Aloysius which was too small to be a cathedral anyway, and, uh, and couldn't be expanded because of the surrounding buildings. So the name of St. Patrick's was changed to the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul, and, and it served as the cathedral church. Well, the city continued to expand. Ultimately, the neighborhoods gave way to um, commercial property, commercial development, and, then, and, the, and the community grew smaller and smaller around St. Patrick's, and eventually... Uh, it was decided to relocate the cathedral one more time, and this was in 1938, and it was relocated to its current spot, which is uh, the Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament. And in 1983, St. Patrick's was finally closed and abandoned, and then, sadly, in 1993, an arsonist torched the building, and it was totally lost. 
Now we go to St. Alberta's church, established in 1872. And this is a church established by Polish immigrants. Polish immigrants began coming to Detroit as early as 1850, but by the 1870s, uh, there started to be more or less a tidal wave. By the, by 1900, uh, they came in droves. Uh, so first, the Polish people moved into German parishes and started going to, to uh, church with the German community at churches like um, St. Joseph's Shrine. But they, uh, they, like everyone else, wanted to have their own church. They wanted their own identity. So they built a small church in a district known as Wojklakowa, or Wojklakowa, I guess it is, but more commonly we call it Pole Town. And originally it was a frame church, and it was finally, that was in 1872, but it was replaced by the church that you see in this image in 1885. Um, A disagreement among parishioners led to the departure of Father Kolosinski, and he then returned and took some of the parishioners, and they built their own church called Sweetest Heart of Mary, not more than a mile from this location. We'll talk about that in a moment. Here's a photograph of a Corpus Christi procession in Pole Town in the 1860s. It must have been marvelous to have everybody turn out in a procession on, on that uh, beautiful Sunday and, and go down to St. Albertus. On the right, you see a picture of the Frame Church in 1872, and then that was, that was uh, then replaced by the current church. This is a photograph of a man named Stanislaw, his wife, Rosalia, and for their first four children, they had 12 ultimately. These are actually my wife's grandparents, and they lived in the Pole Town area, and they went to St. Albertus. Here's another shot of St. Albertus with the Michigan historic plaque attached to the building, and you see the current shot of the, of the building in the center, but you notice that the steeple is uh, considerably modified from the original. The photograph from 1885 at the right shows that the steeple was much taller and much more elegant. The interior is a wow. Um, every square inch is decorated in one way or another. There's, uh, this is the central altar. Uh, you see the altar table uh, used for mass now is, is uh, in front of that, but the traditional Tridentine mass altar is in the back. Um, just fantastic uh, stained glass uh, paintings and icons. It just an, a total expression of the Polish Catholic culture in this building. Here's a view from the choir loft of the main altar. And you'll notice that there are some white spots on the ceiling in the blue. And that's where paint has actually fallen down. The church is no longer in service as a church. And it's a constant uh, uh, task to, to restore and repair the, this old building. Here's a beautiful ornate window to the left, and then another shot of the main altar on the right. The the stained glass windows tell the story of the faith in Poland. Uh, Saints like Stanislaw, Albertus, and others are are portrayed in in the stained glass windows. And here's a side altar. What an ornate side altar. And I have to chuckle because in amongst everything, if you look carefully, you'll see a picture of John Paul II uh, up on the... uh, on the one column, the first and only Polish pope. So here's a shot backwards toward the uh, toward the entrance, and the and you see the pipe organ and the choir loft above that. Now St. Albertus Church has been closed since 1990. It's no longer uh, 
a church of the archdiocese. It's managed by the Polish American Historic Site Association, and they're the official caretaker. And this is with the full support of the archdiocese. And the church is occasionally used for a special mass uh, on, on special events. There's usually two or three or four masses per year celebrated at St. Albertus. Let's go back to St. Anne, the original parish founded in 1701. Um, in 1818, the stone church was constructed. And this was after the fire of 1805. The first six churches of St. Anne's were all log churches or wooden churches. They were all uh, destroyed by fire. And so finally, in 1818, they established the stone church, and that lo was located in what is now called uh, Cadillac Square. Um, it, was, it became the cathedral for a while, and then that was transferred to St. Peter and Paul on Jefferson, then to St. Aloysius, then to St. Patrick. The Stone Church endured until 1889. Uh, the eighth Church of St. Anne's was constructed in southwest Detroit, and it was consecrated and opened its doors in 1889. And the parish at that time was still overwhelmingly French, but in the next 50 years, it would become predominantly Catholic. Now, many items from the stone church were transferred to the new St. Anne's. This included the altar, clerestory windows, the carved oak communion rail, and many of the statues and icons from the older church. And the second, and you see the church located here, it's not far from the Ambassador Bridge. The second oldest parish in the Detroit region was across the river. It was Assumption Parish in Windsor, which began as a mission church for the indigenous people, and it too migrated across the city of Windsor until ironically, it's located almost directly across the river from St. Anne's. This is another aerial view of, of uh, St. Anne's. Um, and as it's noted here in 1889, the parish was predominantly French, in 1989, predominantly Hispanic. Here's an interior view showing the, right, the uh, side altar on the right side of the church and then the photo to the right shows the choir loft and the pipe organ uh, over the entrance of the church. In the 1980s, the street in front of the church was closed, and so a plaza was formed, which makes it much, a much more gracious entrance to St. Anne's. Here's a view of the main altar as you enter the church and you go forward. An interesting thing to note is the ambo, which is an elevated platform uh, to the, it's in just left of the central aisle. The homilist would come down to this ambo, and instead of walking up to a lectern like we do it in our church now, they would climb up the ladder up to the ambo and stand at the top of that where they could be seen in every corner of the church, and then they would speak as, as loudly and clearly as they could. You notice what looks like a clamshell over the top of the ambo? That's an, an, an um a baffle to reflect the sound forward toward the people. So this is how it was. things were accomplished before electronic amplification was available. And air conditioning must be an issue because there's a very large fan on the floor here right in front of Archbishop Vigneron as he celebrates Mass uh, on this particular occasion at St. Anne's Church. There's another shot of the ambo. You can see the ladder a little more clearly on the left part of the of the photograph, and then there are two uh, um, confessional uh, booths located against the walls. 
In the back of the church is a, a display, a gallery, if you will. And that altar that you see there is the original altar from the old stone church. The mortal remains of uh, Father Gabriel Richard are enclosed in a crypt here. And there are these educational signboards uh, talking about the history of St. Anne's, um, the story of Gabriel Richard, and the, and the story of early Detroit. On March, 20, on March 1st, 2020, uh, Detroit Archbishop Alan H. Vigneron announced that the Holy Father, Pope Francis, had granted the title of Minor Basilica to St. Anne's Church in Detroit. And this, church, this title is given to churches around the world to denote a particular importance in liturgical and pastoral life and a closer relationship with the Pope. So the Pope designates churches to be uh, minor basilicas, and so he chose St. Anne's for that honor. The windows in St. Anne's are spectacular. You see the lives of the saints. Um, just uh, just a, a wonderful, you can spend a, a whole day just looking at the windows in St. Anne's. Let's go back to, to uh, Pole Town. Um, in 1871, we talked about how 300 Polish families organized, organized the St. Albertus uh, Parish. Well, their pastor, Father Dominic Hippolytus Kolosinski, who was from Krakow, uh, was chosen as pastor at that time. But in 1885, trouble persisted in the parish, and the, and the community actually split into two factions. And this led to Father Kolosinski's suspension and reassignment and I believe he was sent out to South Dakota, of all places. But in 1888, he was allowed to return to the city, and with the somewhat dissident group from St. Albertus, he formed a new parish of the sweetest heart of Mary outside the jurisdiction of the Detroit Diocese. Well, that, this is never done. He, he built a church without permission, and this is the church that was built, this huge church, um, and it's done in a, a Greek, uh, excuse me, a Gothic revival style. The cornerstone was laid in 1892, and by December 24th, 1893, the church was officially dedicated. Here's a photo to the left of what it looks like today, and a photo to the right that's taken around the 1930s. And at that time, there were businesses to the to the west of the church and to the front of the church. But in the back, you saw how workers' houses. Pole Town was wall-to-wall -wall houses, every single block, right up to the church. Now, two of the, uh, one of the interesting stories about Sweetest Heart of Mary is about the stained glass windows. And the, these are the two windows. The, the window to the, to the right is, uh, shows the, the child Jesus working in the carpentry shop of his father Joseph, and, and Mary is in the, in the picture as well. And the other window is about um, St. Vincent de Paul. Now, these, this church was constructed and dedicated in 1893, but the World's Fair in Chicago was also in 1893. So they, they had a competition of stained glass windows from, for churches all across the United States in Chicago at the World's Fair. They disassembled each of these windows, put them in crates and boxes, shipped them by train to Chicago, reassembled them, and they won first prize. So then they had to take them apart again, put them in crates, put them on the train, bring them back, and reassemble them here. What an effort. Here's a view of the altar. 
the church was built right about the time that electrification uh, was happening and, and the incandescent light was starting to change people's lives. So you see all these incandescent lights that are, that are arranged in, in, in strips that, that form a canopy over the altar. It looks perhaps a little gaudy, but at the time it was like, this was fantastic, this was progressive. And, and I have to tell you, if you're there in, the, in the darker, a darker day or an evening and those lights are on, it's absolutely spectacular. And so the angel says. Now, the other thing about Sweetest Heart of Mary is it's a very active community. They don't all live near the church, but, but they have an annual pierogi festival, and it's really quite a big deal. Here's a picture of the, of the parish church um, today. And if you remember the photo from before where the houses came all the way up to the back of the church, those houses are gone. There, there's, the, the nearest house is a good half mile or more away from, from the parish uh, church now. And it's all commercial property in the area. So the community that supports Sweetest Heart of Mary doesn't reside anywhere near Sweetest Heart of Mary. Now, because... Father Kolosinski built a church without permission of the archdiocese. The archdiocese sort of responded by establishing St. Josephette Parish, which is only about three blocks away from uh, Sweetest Heart of Mary. And this building was a combination church, convent, and elementary school, and it was staffed by Polish Felician sisters. Um, it, um, it had three bells in it. And the steeple bells, and the one in the middle was called St. Leo, and the, and the two bells that were in the smaller steeples were called St. Peter and St. Paul. And during consecration and transubstantiation, you will hear St. Peter and Paul ring out to the neighborhood. And the, but I'm not sure they do that anymore because I believe the parish is now closed. Our Lady of Chestakova, uh, great Polish heritage in this church. So there was a... There was a um, um, a copy of, of, the, of this painting was brought to the, uh, to the church after uh, Father Jan Radzkowski, uh, the pastor, after he, he went to Poland and saw the painting, he, he commissioned one and brought it here to the parish. Here's a view of the altar, the interior, and there are two very interesting murals in the church. You can, you, one is to the right, and it's of... Uh, people in, in Polish uh, peasant garb, traditional clothing, in procession, walking to America to establish this church. The painting on the other side uh, is all about uh, the what was called the Miracle on the Vistula. And this was a battle that happened after the First World War. Uh, Poland was created at the close of the First World War, but Russia and Ukraine both decided to try to take it over. They thought the Allies would be tired of war and wouldn't try to defend this newly created Polish state, and they were right. The Allies had no stomach for a continued war. The Poles were left on their own, and it looked like they were going to lose their new freedom. And a worldwide call went out for volunteers, and about 115 uh, young men from St. Josephette Parish volunteered. And they, they went uh, to Poland, they joined the Polish army, and they fought. And on August 15th, Feast of the Assumption, they won a fantastic victory against overwhelming forces, which caused the Russians to 
uh, withdraw and to forget about trying to uh, overcome uh, Poland. And about half of those men did not return. They were killed in battle. In November of 2013, a storm blew up through the, the city of Detroit, and unfortunately, St. Joseph had steeple, which is actually a wooden frame, uh, was displaced. And you can see in the photo at the left that there's a quite a distinct curve in it. Uh, originally, it was, it was thought that there was no money to, to be able to fix this. They were going to dismantle it to make it safe. But parishioners all across the Detroit metropolitan area said, oh, no, 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 here. Here's my five bucks. Here's my ten bucks. And they got enough money together, and they, and they uh, uh, were able to, within the year, uh, build the new steeple. Here's a view along Canfield Avenue. You're standing right in front of St. Joseph at church. In the background, you can see the twin steeples of St. Sweetest Heart of Mary. And beyond that, you can see the single steeple of St. Albertus Church. This is Polish heritage of Detroit right here in these three churches, except there's actually more. St. Hyathan's Church, which is east of uh, this location, was also established as a, a, by the Polish community. And that, was, uh, that parish was established in 1897. This is an interior of the church, uh, very ornate, uh, clerestory windows all around the altar. The, the, um, you can see the, the dome of the, uh, there are several domes within the church. The, um, let's go on to the next, oh, and then in the church, there's two very interesting uh, items. To the left, you see a statue of Maximilian Kolbe. Maximilian Kolbe was a Polish Franciscan who defied the Nazis, and he ultimately uh, was sent to Auschwitz. He, uh, he led all the other people there in prayer. They tried to starve him to death. It didn't work. They finally had to inject him with carbolic acid. But, so he, but he was a fantastic uh, saint. Uh, if you don't know about Maximilian Kolbe, do yourself a favor and find out. The other item in the church that's quite interesting is this mural, uh, and it shows six churches. At the top and the left is St. Albertus, the first Polish church. Then there's Sweetest Heart of Mary, and then St. Josephat. Then there, in the bottom row, then there's St. Stanislaw. St. Stanislaw was closed and was sold to uh, a Protestant denomination, and then it was sold again and sold again, and no one's done anything with it, and now it sort of sits in ruins. St. Hyathan's church is the one that we're in where this mural exists. And then Immaculate Conception Church was demolished to make way for the GM Cadillac plant. And if you're from Detroit, you might remember those days. That was a very bitter and uh, uh, disappointing day. In Hamtramck, across the line, uh, outside of Detroit, but in the city of Hamtramck, is St. Florian Church. It was established, <coughs> parish was established in 1907, and, uh, and it was established by Polish immigrants who worked at Dodge, Maine. Now, my wife's grandmother on her mother's side uh, came from Poland when she was only 14 years of age. And a cousin met her in New York. She came by herself. And she met her, this cousin met her there, took her by train back to Detroit. And she said, I've got a job for you. It's at a place called Dodge, Maine. And my wife's grandmother said, 
but I don't speak any English. How will I exist there? And, the, and her cousin said, don't worry about it. Everybody speaks Polish at Dodge, Maine. Well, that Polish community built this church. Uh, they, they got together $500,000, and they built a new church uh, in the 1970s, or excuse me, 1920s. So 1907, the parish was founded. By 1920, they were ready to build. And in 1926, uh, construction started. In 1928, the parish uh, was, the church was consecrated. In 1969, Carol Cardinal Wojtyla uh, celebrated Mass at this church, and of course he became uh, Pope John Paul II. Very ornate stained glass windows, very ornate steeples, such pride, such, such, um, such wonder in these churches. And look at that, the, the backdrop to the altar. And then the stained glass windows also. This church is very, very ornate and very, very well preserved. On the exterior, many details. Here's another view of the main altar, and the lighting is, is something else in this church as well. Here's the historic marker, and another view of the interior of the church. Another church from this time period was Our Lady of the Rosary Church. Parish was once again established in 1907, and this church is on Woodward Avenue. Uh, it was originally built as St. John, St. Joseph's Episcopal Church from 1893 to 1896. It's a historic Romanesque revival church. It has that very articulated, heavy stonework. Uh, the church was consecrated in 1884 uh, as St. Joseph's, but it soon proved too small. And a larger church had to be completed, and that was done in 1896. And then St. Joseph's congregation merged with the congregation of the nearby St. Paul's, Cathed Paul's Cathedral. And, uh, and the best Blessed Virgin Mary is atop the steeple there. And if you're going out to the airport, you always see her. Here's a view of the original church in 1884, and then the uh, Romanesque-style church that replaced it and exists today. Another church, also dates from 1907, was Holy Family Church, and this was an Italian community. Um, it started out when, on December 1907, there were 30 men at St. Peter and Paul Church, which is on Jefferson. They formed a committee, and they wanted to um, develop uh, an Italian parish. And so they... Uh, they formed the Fraternal Order of San Giuseppe, and this is the result of their action. Um, so the, the parish offers Italian Sunday Mass and a Tridentine liturgy, as well as uh, English Mass. Here's the interior. Here's the altar. Uh, very ornate. A lot of painting. This, this church is a little bit newer than some of the others that we've seen, but still from the uh, it's early 20th century. Another church built downtown, is Sacred Heart Church. It was constructed in 1920s. There was also a church to St. Peter Claver built in 1938. But um, St. Peter Claver Parish, in the, which was located in the Brewster Housing Project, was too small for its African-American members. So Archbishop Mooney turned over all the Sacred Heart buildings to the St. Peter Claver Parish for their use. And so since that time, it's been the source and strength and vitality 
for the African American Catholic community. And here and here you can see the church is full at a mass and the and the important figure in the founding of that parish was Father Norman Duquette. And uh, and he ultimately goes to Flint and establishes more parishes up there. A church on the west side is Holy Redeemer Parish. This started in 1880s. Um, it was predominantly Irish immigrants at that time, uh, but then eventually um, there became more. There were German immigrants, and then eventually it became more Hispanic. So in the 1880s, the church was Irish and German, and then 19, by 1960, like St. Anne's, it was it became a Hispanic parish. Here's an interior of the church from the choir loft. And that brings us to St. Bonaventure Monastery. So this story starts in 1883. The Capuchins had centers in New York City and in Wisconsin. And they wanted to have a, a monastery, a seminary, a training area for their, for their uh, priests and brothers. And they wanted to put it in a central location, so they chose Detroit. So in 1883, uh, two priests came to this location and established the monastery. In, uh, and, it was in the and the building that you see here was completed in 1913. The building that's right in front of it was the soup kitchen, which was added in 1908 and later became the, uh, the Third Order Hall. Here's a view of the monastery and the chapel behind it uh, from about 1912. And then here's what it looks like today. So it's been marvelously re restored. And, um, and the other thing that's marvelous about it is that the, in the, the church itself, the ornate altar, the carved wood, uh, the intricate uh, carpentry work is, has been preserved. And of course, the most famous resident of um, St. Um, Bonaventure Monastery was Father Solanus Casey, or Blessed Solanus Casey. And his favorite expression is, let us thank God ahead of time. He worked, in the, he worked as the porter and the doorman, but he also worked in the soup kitchen. Uh, here's a, a photo of him uh, working as the porter. And as a porter, he would meet people who came to see other priests or for confessions or or for whatever reason they came, and he would jot down what, who they wanted to see, and while they waited, he would talk with them. And that's the story of Father Solanus, how he helped so many people who came and simply asked to, eventually they, they came only to see Father Solanus. He was also uh, fond of playing his violin. If you've ever heard one of his recordings, ouch. Um, he liked it, but he never became a virtuoso. His statue, of course, is uh, throughout the, the, uh, the Solanus Casey Center and, and Bonaventure Monastery. He died in 1957, and at that time, he was buried in the cemetery for the brothers, which is just north of the chapel. Uh, about 50 years later, his body was exhumed, it's found incorrupt, and he was moved into this crypt that you see in, inside the um, the monastery directly adjacent to the chapel. And you see people praying and leaving their prayer requests on the top of it. That's been slightly modified now, and it now has a glass cover over it, and the casket is uh, even with the floor. We see Archbishop Vigneron praying over the, uh, the grave of Father Solanus Casey. There's a Hall of the Beatitudes in the center, and it uh, gives us the uh, lives of notable Catholics, 
and their accomplishments. And then they also have a healing mass on, I believe, on Wednesdays. And so there's, and there's also programs that uh, happen every day of the week down there. And then in 2017, I believe it was, um, Father Solanus, Venerable Father Solanus, became Blessed, blessed Solanus Casey uh, because this woman from Nicaragua was cured of an incurable disease when she prayed for the intercession of Solanus Casey. And Ford Field is where the beatification mass took place. I believe it's the largest crowd they've ever had in Ford Field. It was over 70,000 people. Every seat was filled, and, and the entire grounds were covered with folding chairs. And, uh, and there was only a very small area that was open uh, for the um, uh, ceremonies. So that's where we're going to leave it now. Next week, we're going to talk about the church in Detroit in the 20th century. We're going to talk about some basilicas that are established. We'll talk about Synod 16, uh, which happened in the year 2016. And we're also going to talk about the family of parishes, Macomb Vicariate Number 5, of which St. Malachy Church is a member. So as in all things, let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace be with you. Thanks for listening.